time. Actually, it looks like the weather's going to hold off, so no rain or snow out there this weekend. You turn tonight in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're in our seventh installment of Paul's mission, his missionary journeys, the work that Paul did. The reason that we have most of the letters written to the churches in the New Testament, so uh, tonight we come to the church that would be founded there at Ephesus and Paul's work there, so you can see we've been to Antioch and Philippi and to uh, Acacia and all of these cities, to Athens, to Corinth. Uh, These all ultimately will comprise the letters to the churches in the New Testament. And so the book of Acts kind of is the background information as to why the letters that we have written to those churches were actually written in the first place. So we've seen the church at Thessalonica. We can understand then from the book of Acts why Paul actually penned these individual letters. So the book of Acts is extremely important as background information and is very practical because it was how the church was originally functioned, how it, how it formed, how the church was actually uh, given instruction what to do and how to take care of problems and all those kind of things. And so tonight uh, we find ourselves at the church in Ephesus. And, of course, if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you remember there the letters to the seven churches. The church at Ephesus was the church that uh, was really given that negative affirmation, if you will, that it was that church that lost its first love. It was that church that uh, was there in that region of Laodicea that uh, really kind of had the problem that they they really kind of fell away from the things of God. And so this church was a church that was founded in a city that was given over to the worship of uh, Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, and uh, was also a very sexually oriented society. And so uh, Paul now is going to go to work in the city of Ephesus. And so before we get there, why don't we pray and ask God to bless this word. Father God, as we again just come and spend some time together with you this evening, uh, Lord, we have indeed come to hear from you by your Spirit. And Lord, it's an interesting passage that it seems as though these 12 men that Paul first meets were believers. They were saved, but they lacked power. And Lord, we don't want to lack power in this day and age. And so, Father, we believe that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, come. Uh, fill this place. Fill us, Lord. Overflow us to good works. Lord, to victory over sin, Lord, to victory in our lives and those things where our flesh raises up. God, you've called us to be your witnesses in this world, and without the Spirit's power, that is a difficult task. And so, Lord, we give you the opportunity to speak to us tonight. We ask that you would do it, that your voice would be clear, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Acts chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Remember, Paul's been there already. They founded the church. The church at Corinth is underway. Paul would write two letters to that city, uh, a very debauched city, of course, and that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, in other words, coming around over through Macedonia and down now into Ephesus, he came to Ephesus finding, notice, some disciples Now, wherever the word disciples is used in the New Testament, almost without question, it always means people who are believers. Uh, There are some who take this passage and say, well, these guys weren't actually saved. Um, That does not seem to be indicated by the text. It seems to indicate from the text that these guys actually believed in Christ Jesus as Lord. And we're going to get to what does it take to be saved 
uh, in just a few moments. Because this is one of those passages that often people will confuse and twist and tweak to their particular doctrinal bent. And we want to take it plainly for what it says. And it says, finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a very important question. Because the reception of the Holy Spirit happens, of course, at salvation. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, that is the mark of a believer. And without that initial work of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to have victory over sin. And in fact, I I want you to turn uh, specifically to John chapter 16 before we go any further, uh, because the Lord himself made it very clear Uh, that being saved meant that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit at some point in time, and it would do a couple of things for you. And those two things are extremely important for us to understand, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the world. Verse 5, John chapter 16, it says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so Jesus is telling them that once he is crucified and once he's dead and buried and raised, he is going to leave them. He's going to exit the scene. He is no longer going to be with them in body. He's not going to be around anymore so the disciples can ask questions, uh, speaking specifically of the twelve disciples at that point in time. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now, notice what he says. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, word helper is a very wonderful word. It's the Greek word uh, paraclete. It is often used for the Holy Spirit. And so the helper is going to come only if Jesus goes away. While the Lord was here on earth, he himself was God's representative. But when he left, we were not left without power, without witness, and without the ability, in essence, to have that ongoing work of God while the Lord tarries during this age of grace. And so, to some degree, the Holy Spirit steps on the scene, and in the life of the church, the life of the beloved, the life of the believer, the Holy Spirit kind of steps into that void that Jesus left when the disciples were being ministered to him one-on-one. And so the Holy Spirit comes in and fills that void. In other words, Jesus didn't teach me directly, but he did teach the Apostle Paul directly by speaking to him on the road to Damascus. He did teach Peter and James and John and Matthew and all of those guys. But the Holy Spirit takes that role now in the church and in a sense in the pastorate and in the way the church functions, the body of Christ functions. And notice what it says. The helper will not come to you unless the Lord goes away. But if I depart, I will send, notice the word him, capitalized no doubt in your Bible, him to you. The Holy Spirit is a him. It's a person. The Holy Spirit's not a power. It is not just an entity. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is a him. It is the third person of the Trinity, fully God, and yet Spirit of God. It's, ca- it's called the Spirit of God. It's called the Holy Spirit. A uh, number of different names given. The Helper is another one, Paraclete. The Spirit of God is a hymn, will come to you, and when, notice again, capitalized, he has come, he will convict the world of sin. Okay, that's the first thing. 
One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the world is to convict the world of sin. In other words, we know what is wrong. Notice the second thing, and of righteousness, and of judgment. So there are three things that happen. Conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, in other words, that which is right with God, and ultimately, what is at stake, which is judgment. By grace and through faith, that judgment is taken upon the back of Jesus Christ, and we receive the grace of God and will receive heaven. Without it, the Holy Spirit not ministering to someone who knows him, then that person simply has a conviction of what's right and what's wrong. That judgment then still lies on them. They understand that there's something coming after. It's one of the reasons that almost all people in the world, it's in the high 90 percentiles, believe in some form of afterlife. And that afterlife almost universally is comprised of some kind of judgment. It's usually the justice of a supreme being, but there's a judgment. Good deeds, bad deeds bear out certain things. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. We understand those things completely. We have the Word of God combined with the work of the Holy Spirit, the witness of God's Holy Scriptures. So we know those things. Notice what it says. goes on to say now, of end of judgment and of sin. So, convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin. In other words, judgment is going to come because of sin. So that is the key there. That judgment, as far as the unbelieving world is concerned, is that their sin is going to be judged. People understand that fully. Most people understand that there's a price to be paid to live your life the way you want. Now, notice what it says. Because they do not believe in me. So the judgment of sin is going to come specifically for one reason and one reason alone. They do not believe in me. Notice what's missing doesn't say anything about baptism, doesn't say anything about church membership, doesn't say anything about reading Greek or Hebrew. It says, because they don't believe in me, their sin will be judged, judgment will come. So the Holy Spirit comes into the world. In the life of the believer, we have conviction of sin and of righteousness. We also understand that that judgment's been forestalled, but for the world, that judgment remains. And so here, as we get into this passage tonight, we find a prime example of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, in this church at Ephesus. And so it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? If you don't receive the work of the Holy Spirit, now here's how you can apply it. You have no conviction of sin. You have no conviction of righteousness. You don't believe there's going to be any judgment for those things. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that, then chances are almost 100% you have not believed in Jesus Christ. Because without those three things, those are the work of the Holy Spirit that come when you get saved. If you don't fear God, if you don't believe that there's sin, if you don't believe there's righteousness, and if you don't believe that God will ultimately judge that sin then chances are you don't know the Lord. And so the work of the Holy Spirit initially in the life of a believer who becomes then a disciple is those things. But it's not supposed to end there. 
That isn't supposed to be the end of our walks with the Lord. There should be yet a further work of the Spirit in our life. And that further work is the same work that actually went on in Jesus' humanness at his baptism. And it comes along, the, the Spirit comes and works in the life of that person out of them, not just in them, but out of them. And that is that external work of the Holy Spirit uh, that comes subsequent to baptism. Now notice what he says. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, these guys have been called disciples. I think the Apostle Paul has made the distinction that they are in fact saved. He said, and he said to them, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You're not going to have any understanding of the Holy Spirit of God unless you're uh, filled with, the, with God's Holy Spirit as a believer. And so these guys apparently had had some type of a conversion experience. They were not familiar with what was going on spiritually at that time. And so they're like, well, we don't know. And so he said to them, into what were you baptized? And they said, now we get the understanding of why they were like this, into John's baptism. And then John's baptism is described. You see, John had an incomplete view of the finished work of, of the Lord. He knew that Jesus was coming, but he had no idea of the work of the Holy Spirit himself. And so they were baptized into John's baptism. John preached and taught very clearly the Messiah was coming taught very clearly that Jesus was the one that we were to give our allegiance to ultimately. Notice what it says in verse 4. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying that people, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Jesus Christ. So in doing that, they had the right Savior, but that view of the Lord Jesus himself left them without the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They weren't looking forward to what would happen, which we saw happen back in chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so these guys were saved, but they were basically powerless. Now this describes a huge percentage of the church in the world today. People who they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they know who he is, they can tell you the four spiritual laws, they can read you off a few scriptures, but there is pretty much zip going on in their life with regard to the things of God. There's no power, there's no zest, there's no zeal. Uh, God isn't all of whom they are. Uh, God is a little tiny part of their life, and they go visit him on Sunday at a church someplace as a general rule. There's no work of the Spirit. And so now he goes on to say that they should believe on him who would come after him, and that is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, notice, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied, and now the men were about twelve in all. And so something else happens to them. They kind of had a dead type of belief. They had an understanding of salvation. They believed in the Lord. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ specifically, which is sufficient to save anyone. And in fact, we're going to get there in just a couple of minutes. It, that is what it takes to be saved, believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that isn't where it ends. That's not where it stops. That is not the completion. That is the beginning of your walk with the Lord. And so as you're Faith grows as that work of the Spirit comes into your life. You begin to do greater and greater things. And then verse 8 it says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, 
reasoning and persuading concerning the things of God. But when some hardened their hearts and did not believe, they spoke evil of the way. And that's an interesting name for the disciples, uh, people of the way or children of the way before the multitude. The way was basically the way of Christ Jesus. And so he was talking about those people who are speaking evil of the people of God and before the multitude. And he departed from them, withdrew from the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so here, apparently, as these guys uh, had their lives transformed by something, not, not salvation itself, but a second and subsequent thing, and that would be the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They began to work in a greater way, and Paul is emboldened, and he begins to preach as well. This important question that's asked, and I want to remind you, people often get baptism confused with salvation, and there are some denominations that even teach that you must be baptized in order to be saved. I made some allusion to this last time we were together, and I want to just clear up a couple of things tonight. Jesus himself was baptized. You don't need to turn here, but if you want to just jot down Matthew chapter 3, and as Jesus is being baptized... Now, there in verse 13 of Matthew 3, Jesus came from Galilee to John, who's in the Jordan, to be baptized by him. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. So John recognizes this is the Messiah. This baptism that I'm doing, this is being baptized. These people are being baptized for you, not for me. In other words, John's baptism was looking forward to Jesus Christ. John's baptism wasn't some different kind of baptism. And Jesus answered, verse 15 says there in Matthew 3, and said to him, Permit it so to be now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus himself was baptized. Did Jesus need to get saved? The answer is no. So what purpose did his baptism serve? If it was not to be saved himself, which is obviously ridiculous, he was Jesus, he was perfect and sinless, the spotless Lamb of God, he did not need to be baptized to be saved. So if Jesus was being baptized, what was it, what was it for? And then he allowed him, verse 16, And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. So when Jesus was baptized, it was at that time that the Spirit of God actually came upon Jesus. Now remember, Jesus was fully human. So all that Jesus did was wrapped up in human flesh. And so Jesus was hungry, Jesus you know, spent time thirsty, he did all those things. Jesus had the Holy Spirit actually descend upon him, and in his humanness, those human weaknesses were tended to by the Spirit of God himself. And if you remember, he went out there from there, was in the wilderness, and was tested. It was immediately uh, that the voice was heard from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus was baptized, but absolutely not for salvation. He receives the power of the Holy Spirit now to go and do the work of God the Father. That is the basic principle that's found there in that passage. Uh, Jesus commanded the disciples, Matthew chapter 28, to go and baptize. But what he does there is he gives a little mini outline. He basically tells them to go make disciples of all the nations. That means that they would become saved. You can't be a disciple without salvation. That's impossible. Subsequent to that, he says to baptize them. 
that would be concentrating the thing that they've already had happen in salvation into here's a public witness of that. In other words, now it's understood, hey, I'm a Christian. When we perform a baptism, when we do those at the camp or down at the ocean or whenever we baptize somebody, you are telling the world with that action that you have committed your life to Jesus Christ and the fullness of it. And at the same time, we are asking for God in his fullness to use you. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to come upon that person and to use them in fullness. And so uh, that's what was taught to the early disciples. Uh, it's also extremely important, Mark chapter 16, that in Jesus' teaching about baptism, uh, verse 14 of Mark 16, it says, Later he appeared to the eleven as he sat by a table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had sent him after he had risen and said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not, notice this, does not believe will be condemned. So when he's talking about who will be condemned, in other words, the unsaved, the only criteria he gives, no baptism mentioned there, is belief. And so baptism from Jesus' perspective was not essential to salvation. The apostles, of course, taught the church to baptize just as Jesus did. Paul preached the ordinance of baptism, but he made it very, very clear that baptism was also of not a tremendous importance. You can turn to 1 Corinthians, and I just want to give you this one last passage before we move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it says there, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And so he's kind of straightening out some doctrinal issues here. One of the reasons he writes to the church at Corinth is they are a mess. They're teaching all kinds of wacky doctrine. And so he says to them, there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, same judgment. For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that those of Chloe's household, that there are some contentions among you. And now I say to each of you this, I am Paul. Who says, I am of Paulus or Cephas or I am of Christ? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Notice what he says, verse 14. For I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel without the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be of no effect. So Paul makes it extremely clear that baptism is not only not essential, he actually made the statement he was thankful that he didn't confuse anybody because they might have thought that his baptism was different than Apollos's or that somebody else baptized one way and he baptized another. He did not want salvation hanging on baptism. And so he writes to the church, I'm thankful I didn't baptize very many people. But he did preach the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel that saves souls. And subsequent to that, we find that there's a work that goes on in the life of the church that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The same work that happened to Jesus at his baptism happens to us as we ask God's Spirit to come upon us, to fill us and to overflow us, so that we can then go forth and do the work that God's called us to do. Very much the same reason that Jesus himself was filled with the Spirit of God. 
And so it's almost as if God the Son and God the Spirit join forces for a while. It's kind of the easiest way for us to understand it, because Jesus was fully God. So as fully God, he was fully God. He didn't lack anything. But if you take the Spirit of God and the Son of God and God the Father, and they're all doing a work in a specific area, then you can well imagine that 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 would be a force times three. And so it just simply adds to the power in that situation. It doesn't add to the completion. It just adds to the power. And so it's the same thing with us. We're complete in Christ Jesus, but if I want the Spirit of God in my life to move, I'm asking for more power for God to do what God wants to do. Freedom from sin is what we saw. Understanding of righteousness is what we saw. Understanding of the judgment of sin is what we saw. Those things happen by the Spirit of God. And so it's a wonderful place that we can look and recognize what that what that filling of the spirit really does none of these 12 men had been baptized and and so they were seeking to be religious there was probably something missing from their lives and i think a lot of times that very much explains why the church is in the trouble it is we're not looking for god to do anything spectacular we're not looking for god to do anything miraculous we're simply sitting around you know i go to calvary chapel so i'm fine you know, I, I praise God that I, I believe we, we do church reasonably well here, but that's not the end of it, family of God. We need to be looking for the Lord to fill us with his spirit so that we can go forth and do the things that God's called us to do. If I do stuff in my own flesh, I run out of Jeff really fast. You know, it, it, it doesn't take me too long to run out of me. You know, about the third or fourth counseling session in a single day, and I'm like, oh, Lord, please just, you know, let him have a bunion or something. And the next guy that I'm going to talk to you, I've got a crooked toe. Okay, we'll pray for it. You know, I, I don't know. You know, after a while, you're, you, you just run out of your human ability to even ab- absorb those things. But in the Spirit of God, it's crazy what God can do through you. You know, Pastor Mike, I heard great things about Sunday, and I'm down at, at Chino Hills, and, and you know, it, it's just amazing what the Spirit of God does. I had people, it's a congregation, each service is 3,500 people. You know, you're, you're sitting there, and how's that going? You know, I delivered the same message three times, just like we do here on Sunday. I try very, very hard to hear from the Spirit of God, and if things need to be said, I want God to speak. I had people, 3,500, oh, you were speaking to me. Well, I said the same thing last service. Yeah, but it was speaking to me. That's the Holy Spirit working. That's the Holy Spirit translating my words and, you know, opening up that person's mind and they want to receive and I want to give and the Holy Spirit does those things. But if I just go with just notes and just open my mouth, you know, I'm a great orator or what, you know, it's not true. But if it were and, and all of a sudden you could, you could begin to, you know, just almost make it a business. And there'd be no power to it. People's lives wouldn't be changed. You might sell a lot of books, but nothing would happen. We want things to happen. And that happens by the Spirit. We also don't want the flip side of that, because there are a lot of churches where everything's about emotion and commotion. You know, it's just like, well, the more whipped up we get, the more God must be in it. That's not true either. I've seen all kinds of you. I've been to some services when I'm down in Brazil. Every once in a while, we'll go to a Pentecostal church down there. Now, that's a, that's a sight to behold. Because I don't speak very good Portuguese, but I can tell you this. There's a lot going on. 
Now, I'm not sure what any of it is, but there's a lot going on. And there's people flying out of their seats and jumping up and down the aisle. And I saw a guy knock himself out on a lamp. It was like he got so carried away, supposedly, in the spirit, he not knocked unconscious. But, you know, just you, you, you know, you just that's not the Holy Spirit of God, unfortunately, folks. That generally is the commotion of man, the emotion of man trying to whip something into a frenzy, and it has nothing to do with God. It just is people jumping up and down being silly. We're not looking at that either. We have laughing in the Spirit, crying in the Spirit, you know, yelling in the Spirit. There's drumming in the Spirit. There's a whole movement of people that get drums, and we're going to bring in the Spirit of God right now. Now, you'll know the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is literally the essence of God acting in an invisible format to carry out God's will on this earth. And so you know it when it's working, and you know when the Holy Spirit's not working, because generally those things will be contrary to the Word of God. They'll be out of order. Scripture declares that let all things be done decently and in order. God, in fact, is a God of order, and so the things that should happen by the Spirit should match up with God's Word. It shouldn't be out of order of God's Word. So it, it it is very, very easy if you take the time to understand who the Spirit is. And I believe these men were saved, but they lacked the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. And consequently, not a lot going on. We're not told how long they had been disciples. But we know this. Nothing was happening because they didn't even know who the Spirit was. And so if you don't know who the Spirit is, chances are you probably need a little unfilling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Also, I want you to notice that people often get this one confused, too. There was no second, third, fourth, 27th, 200 millionth Pentecost. There, there, there was never another occasion like that. The Holy Spirit came into the world in power at that time and filled the disciples. And from that time forth, that was an individual work that happened in individual lives of people. And so it, it really, to this day, that work is ongoing. And it's available just as much to you or to me as it was to the disciples then. Because Jesus said, remember our passage now, it's why I started with John chapter 16, I will send you a helper. And when the helper comes, you're going to know a couple of things. You're going to have some extra juice, in other words, to carry on the things of the Lord. And so I think they simply had... Uh, inadequate power. Verse 11 now, back in chapter 19. And now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought to him, from, brought to his body, to the sick, and the diseases left them, and e- evil spirits went out of them. It's very important, family of God, that we do not confuse what was done under the authority of the apostles with what is done in the church today. And the reason I say that is very, very clear when you look at the gospel record that there were a lot of things that were done in the first century church that were done simply to validate the work of Jesus Christ on this earth. There were miracles by the boatload. People were healed. Uh, People were caused to be, uh, their blindness left them. I mean, there's just a, a radical amount of things that happened instantaneously right in front of people's eyes. The reason being is at that point in time, you can imagine if there were, if there were ever a time to attack the gospel message, it was then. Because if the gospel message could have been killed in the first century, it 
we wouldn't be here today. And so the Lord, in essence, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the first century church, set forth a bold witness in such a way that it could not be denied. And because there was no television, there were no books, people didn't have iPads, iPhones, iWhatever, they had no way of pulling it up on a computer database, Word of mouth was typically how people heard about things. Imagine if there had been only one guy that had been healed by the Lord. Well, yeah, one guy. I mean, come on. You know, the whole witness would have been something was pretty shaky ground. But when it's hundreds, not hundreds, but thousands, not thousands, but possibly tens or hundreds of thousands of people who had like-type experiences, that witness becomes absolutely irrefutable. And so in the first century, there were all kinds of things that happened that we do not see as frequently now, but we still see because there's no need to validate the word of God. It stood the test of time for 2,000 years. People have been attacking it for that whole time. There hasn't been anybody who's been able to well, look at this contradiction right here, and they'll give you a verse, and it's just simply not there. And so the things that were spoken were proven to be true. They've been validated. And so now we live on the other side of the necessity of those things that were done very frequently in the first century church. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists notice this. I love, is that not a, what a name, itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now you can make a movie. As a matter of fact, they just did, I think, except it's not a Jewish guy. It's a Catholic priest that... And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call in the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're kind of like, This guy's got the deal going on. We'll go ahead and preach this Jesus guy too, because, you know, Paul, I mean, he's pretty famous. So we want to be famous too. So they begin to do those things. And also there were the seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest who did so. And the evil spirit said, I love this, because there's a difference between the real deal and the not-so-real deal. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? I don't really recognize that you have a bit of the Holy Spirit's power in you, and you're doing this all for money and for show. It is a scary thing because you can look on the outside. You know, it's just like every time Benny Hinn gets regurgitated somewhere and pops up on the scene, you know, after he's disappeared for a while to take care of some tax problem or something where he's been exposed on 60 Minutes, like's happened to him, I think, twice now. Uh, it's not a real work of the Spirit. It's a false work of the Spirit. And so when those things happen... Nothing real happens. And so in essence, the demons are saying, eh, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but you, not so much. And then the man whom the evil spirit was in leaped on them. So here they're trying to cast out demons. They're trying to do the same thing that Paul is doing. Not only does it not work, the demon said, I'll show you. I know the Jesus guy, I know the Paul guy, because he preaches Jesus, so let's see if you can get me out of you. And overpowered them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You do not want to go up against demonic hosts without the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And the demons know the difference between something you learn from Bob's school of exorcism. (laughs) Do a Google search, go online, you can get a degree in exorcism, I guarantee you. Now, I went to Bob's school of exorcism, I got an A plus on my exorcism. Yeah, and when you do it, you're going to run out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to both all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You see, ultimately, God exposes phonies. That's the story here. Because you can pull it off for a while. And I'll go back to my example of Benny Hinn and a whole bunch of guys just like him. You can pull it off for a while. Until 60 Minutes plants a camera backstage and they find out that he's wearing an earpiece and they've been circulating through the crowd finding out who's got what kind of problem and oh I think there's a guy in the back and his mother's dying of cancer and she lives in Tuscaloosa, Oklahoma and you know she's had this for three, well they've already asked the guy and of course they give him the, oh come forward and you know you gotta believe it, you gotta receive it, he slaps her three or four times and she falls on the ground and are you well? Yes I'm well. Then you find out that they've known the whole evening what they were going to do. And then they get exposed on national television with hundreds of people working backstage, ripping into letters and pulling the checks out and throwing the prayer requests away. I was exposed on 60 Minutes. God has a way of exposing bonies. And that which is done in secret, Scripture declares, will one day be shouted from the housetops. The rooftops, you can pull the wool over for a while, but eventually God's going to say enough's enough. And so it was with these guys, fear fell on them. The Lord was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Those guys that were kind of in the same thing. You see, this particular city was given over uh, to pagan idolatry and witchcraft. And there are a whole bunch of people we're going to see next. They're going to go berserk because Paul's just messing with business exposing the lies for what they are, exposing the phonies for who they are. And notice what happens. Many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. That would be the equivalent of 50,000 days' worth of wages for human beings. So divide that by 365, and that's how many years' worth of annual wages It's over a thousand years worth of annual wages for people. Okay, if one person worked, it'd be over a thousand years worth of wages. So there were a whole bunch of people that were like, man, I ain't doing this. This, as the kids say, this Jesus guy's legit. You know, it's just like he's the real deal, and if you don't have the real deal, then you are in trouble. And if you got a demon, the dude's going to jump out of the other guy and on to you. This is not good, because Jesus is real. And so the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. And so here they're in this great group of people. People are getting saved. The exorcism uh, didn't succeed because if it had, it would have totally discredited the name of the Lord. Because if these fakes, these phonies, could have done the real thing, then God's name would have been blasphemed among the Gentiles. And so God caused, I believe, this to come about. And 
it's interesting that the tense of the verbs here in Acts 19, verse 18, says that they kept coming, they kept confessing, they kept showing. In other words, so pervasive was the name of the Lord and the work of the Lord that when people heard that work and saw what God was doing, they're like, man, I need to get right with God. And that's what happens in the church today. Have you ever noticed how, you know, that wonderful infection of the Lord Jesus Christ, some person in the family gets saved, and at first everybody's picking on him, and it's just like, and all of a sudden his life starts to turn around, or her life starts to turn around, and God's at work in that life, and then all of a sudden everybody else is going, oh, it must be real. And then somebody else gets saved, and now it's two against five. And then it's, you know, three against four. And before you know it, it switches and goes the other way. And then all these people who were once going, ah, Jesus stuff, that's a bunch of hooey. Now they're going, man, the only real thing in my life is the Lord Jesus. That's the way the Lord works. And they kept confessing and kept showing. And that's what happens. When, when, when people don't make, and this is an important thing here, when people do not make a clean break with sin, when they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit, they've just received that grace gift. They've said, you know what? I believe Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. I believe he died on Calvary's cross. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose. I believe he's in heaven. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But they're not looking for anything other than fire insurance. Then very often they do not have a healthy fear of their own flesh. And they also do not have a healthy understanding of sin, nor of righteousness. And so they walk around in that defeated state all the time. They go from, you know, a little bit of a high to another low, and then back to another high and another low. The mark of a believer who really loves the Lord and is walking with the Lord, and the Holy Spirit is working in them, is consistency. There aren't the radical highs and lows. They're not one day, oh, God is so great. And the next day, I don't even know if I know God. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very consistent in the Holy Spirit's message. And so you'll have that power on a consistent level. It doesn't mean you won't have some highs and lows, but it's not like one day you're acting like a complete heathen and the next day you're, you know, you've got to go to church every day of the week. You'll, you'll see there's consistency when the power of the Holy Spirit is in you. The total of these books and spells and stuff that was burned, actually, if you break it down, it's actually 150 people for a whole year. So it's a bunch of bunch of money that was coughed up. That's, that's the real deal. Moving on now to verse 21, and we see this mob that it, it just begins to irk society, and that's kind of what's going on in our country today. It's, it, it's this crazy uh, division that's happening now. It's like if you speak the name of Jesus, you can say anything, but you love Jesus, and you're, you'll find you know some crowd that will just you'll fit right in with. But if you tell people you actually believe that God's word is inerrant, you believe that Jesus Christ is is God's only begotten Son, and He's the only way of salvation. If you narrow it all down to what the gospel actually is and to what the Bible teaches, all of a sudden people go, "Well, I'm going to have to close up my porn shop." I'm not going to be able to sell this or do that. I'm going to have to give up this thing over here. You start cutting into business. You know, there's an awful lot of things that begin to look like, no, I probably shouldn't be engaged in that if I'm a child of God. And if God's people are, are preaching the real Jesus, there's a bunch of things that we start to say, you know, we probably shouldn't do that anymore. It's kind of what's going on with Planned Parenthood right now. 
Well, maybe, you know, we really shouldn't kill 1.2 million babies annually. Maybe that's not of the Lord. Now, of course it's not of the Lord. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And so what happens is ultimately people get mad. You know why? Planned Parenthood is huge business to the tune of $1.2 billion annually, and $485 million of that are your tax dollars. So when the church stands up, people get mad because they start to lose income. Notice what happens here, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Notice what he's doing. He's wanting what the Spirit of God wants. And when he had passed through Macedonia and Acacia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I'd been there, I must also go to Rome. So now we find out how Paul got to Rome. Remember, when we started this study. How did Paul get to Rome? Well, he went a long way around, is what it boils down to. And so he sent unto Macedonia to two of those who had ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, and but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there was a great commotion about the way. In other words, all the people that had just been there as this fake exorcism goes on, and it doesn't work, and the demons jump out, and all of the sorcerers in the town are they're closing up their shop, and they're cashing in their books, and they're not selling spells anymore. They're not cursing anybody anymore. They've all changed professions. They're out farming or ranching or raising goats. I don't know what they're doing, but they're not doing what they were doing before, and it's very obvious, and it's affecting society. We can look at it like this. You know, the bars are closing down. The, the porn shops are closing uh, those those things which which we should not be engaged in are being affected in a way because the body of Christ is speaking up and speaking with a loud voice and the stuff that people shouldn't be doing is being confronted by God's people. So this is what happens here. There was a great commotion about the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So you can see what the issue is. Hey, they were selling these little, you know, come get your hot Diana of Ephesus statues and you can worship them and they'll bring you all kinds of stuff that we will not mention here tonight. You, you see, this guy was actually making a living off of the putrid life of the temple prostitutes that worked at the temple of Diana. And so he's... They're cutting into my business. My profit margin's going down. These stinking, rotten Christians. I can't believe they would do this. And so who comes under fire? The people who name the name of the Lord. The people who stand up and say, you know what? By the power of Christ in me, that's my hope of glory, we can't do this anymore. We need to forsake these things. We need to stop visiting this little shrine shop. And he's losing money. Very often it comes down to money. Brought in no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called together the workers of similar occupation and says to them, so he goes out and gets his little craft guild, these guys that are making these little idols and selling them. And remember, as I said, you can look up on the hill and there's this huge temple. You can hear all the commotion. You can see the smoke rising from the incense pots. He says... This, that those guys that had the prosperity said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. He says, these Christians, these Jesus freaks, moreover, you see and hear 
that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying there are not gods which are made with hands. He says, guys, come on now. I mean, look at our business plan. Uh, Sales are down. Our margins are getting smaller. I mean, I cannot buy that new RV. I am getting, I'm getting nickeled and dimed by this guy, Paul. And he says these guys are being turned away from our business. And so not only is the trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, like it was in danger of falling into disrepute. It was already in, in disrepute. They just didn't realize it. But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. Now, number one, that was not true. The worship of Diana was very localized and centralized around specifically the city of of Ephesus. And so they're making this big deal out of absolutely nothing. Heard any of that recently? Oh, well, we can't take away that casino money because, you know, the schools will be broke. Guess what? With all the casino money, the schools are more broke than they were before we started allowing Indian casinos to pop up anywhere somebody could buy 20 acres and give it to an Indian tribe. They're still broke. It hasn't fixed a thing. Well, we need to legalize drugs and we need to make these things so that everybody can have them and then nobody will get addicted to them. Uh Uh-huh. Really? I hate to tell you, but that didn't happen. It has always been about the money that's generated from those things. And it is not going into the state budget. We are $28 billion with a B in debt. Friends and family, we spend $28,356 per student in public schools in the state of California. That is second only to the state of New York in the world. What do we get for that? Uh, I, I challenge you, go walk around Rim High. It's in disrepair. Uh, there's nobody taking care of anything. Uh, the kids are not getting that great of an education. Uh, I can tell you this, there are a lot of colleges that you pay to go to that it's a whole lot less than that, and they're learning a whole bunch more stuff. So it's not for lack of money, and isn't that we need more casinos. It certainly isn't that we need to, well, if we just taxed alcohol more, or if we allowed people to smoke dope and taxed it. Have you heard that one? Ah, you see, the the temple of Diana still exists. She has a little different name. But the bottom line is there's all kinds of people that want to make money by ruining people's lives. And that's exactly what casinos do. I, I don't know a single person, never met one. My family was in the gambling business, specifically racehorses, for a long time. And I can tell you this, there is nobody that benefits from it. Nobody. It isn't the guys that are working in the grandstands. It's not the people that are taking your bets. It is not the jockeys. It certainly isn't the racehorses. You see, the Temple of Diana still exists. She just called by different name now. And when you start hacking into it, ah, those rotten Christians, they're just trying to kill our fun. No, I can tell you where that road goes. I can tell you exactly where it leads. 
And it isn't the righteousness. It's not the blessing. Find any person that spent their entire life gambling, you will not find a rich person amongst them. Find a person who's committed their entire life to drinking alcohol every day. You won't find a well person amongst them. Find a stoner. Well, you know, I just got, I got undiagnosed pain. We're debating whether we want to have a pot dispensary next to a bus stop. I don't need to debate that. No is the answer. We can figure out other ways to deal with those things. You know what the statistics tell you? That the people who use medical marijuana dispensaries across the nation, over 86% of them are males between the ages of 19 and 30. Their only undiagnosed pain is they need to get off their backsides and get jobs. (laughs) There you go. Not much has changed. So now when they heard this, they were full of the words of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is the Diana of the Ephesians! So that the whole city was filled with the confusion. Isn't that what goes on today? Try and get people confused about the real issues. Wow, we need this money or the schools are going to go broke. We have had the money and the schools are still broke. So do you think that the casinos are going to fix it? You see, great is the God of the casinos. Great is the God of the tax dollars from pot sales. Great is the God if we just tax alcohol more. It's the same group of people, just a different name. They rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when they wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not let them. And then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent with him pleading that he should not venture into the theater. I love this. Don't go in there. Nah. And some therefore cried out one thing and some another, and for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they'd even come together. Isn't that the way of political correctness? I don't even know what I believe. But I know I don't believe what they're teaching because they're Christians. Joy killers. I, 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 read, I read an article, it was actually an old interview with Hugh Hefner, and he was actually quoted, he was being interviewed by William Banowski, who was the then dean of law at Pepperdine University. And as he was being interviewed, he asked him, you know, kind of about this whole playboy lifestyle thing. And he actually said, you know, well, what about churches? You know, what do you, he, he said, and I quote, if Jesus Christ were alive today and had to choose between being on the staff at one of those joy-killing churches and coming and joining us at one of our clubs, he would certainly join us. Not. You see, the Temple of Diana still lives. It's Playboy, it's the porn industry, it's all those things. Well, we put tax dollars back into the economy. And when they had come together, we don't even know why we're here. We just know we're against them. And he says, and they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews put him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make this defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, with one voice they cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! We need a portion on demand! Hmm. You see, the same thing exists. 
Well, what about the life of the mother? You realize that 89% of all abortions are performed for financial reasons. It's not the life of the mother. never has been. It's about fornication. It's about promiscuous living. It's never been about the life of the mother. It's not about rape and incest. That accounts for 1.3% of all abortions. You see, not much has changed. Different name, same problem. One voice, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, they said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know the city of Ephesians and its temple, the guardian, the great goddess of Diana, and the image which fell down from Zeus? That image was believed to be a, a meteorite that fell, and it was actually in the middle of the temple, and was supposed to be this thing that came from Diana. And they would literally come there, and not to be too graphic, but in essence they would consummate their marital vows in public on this meteorite, and it was supposed to bring fertility. And then they would have abortions. Because, oh, you know, well, we wanted a guy. You, you see, not much has changed. Call a different name. Pretty much the same problem. And therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples or blasphemers of your goddess. And therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and let there be their pro-councils. He's saying, you know what? Paul isn't stopping you from doing anything. He's just talking about another way. And see, that was the case. You see, when you change people's lives, you change their worldview from one of flesh and sin and you change it to a view that Jesus Christ is Lord and the great Redeemer and the Holy Spirit can give you power over sin people make those decisions for themselves do you remember what happened with the group of guys who turned in all their junk from being sorcerers Paul didn't hold a gun to their head he didn't walk over there oh you're going to go to hell this is what he said he simply told them about Jesus they got saved the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they knew they needed to change their life. That's what happens. And so here the same thing is still alive and well in the church today. And therefore, Demetrius says, if they have a case against anyone, the courts are open. We're pro counsel just bring them here. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, for there being no reason which we may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. When you do things God's way, God is your defense. Now, everything I just said about what's going on in our world today, those are true. You can go look them up yourself. You'll find out what the statistics actually are. You can go find out that, you know, we should probably think about these things. And if people give their life to Christ and they believe that God really does change lives, which he does, then all of these things which seem to be debated in the public square really only have a single way that you would actually lean. And people start to make those decisions for themselves. And people say, you know what, i got to stop doing this. 
I, I really shouldn't probably be taking my welfare check down to a casino down at San Manuel and cashing it in and seeing if I can double it because it's not my money to begin with. I actually took that from somebody else who earned it. And you bump into that same person, you know what, man, this life that I've lived inside of this bottle is not going to get me anywhere. And proof positive is I'm sitting out here on the island near Tippecanoe by Costco pushing a shopping cart with a sign that says, we'll work for beer. People start to come to that conclusion themselves when they are really been changed by the Word of God and they come to a real relationship with the Lord. And then God defends that position. God speaks loudly. When, when I travel back to Washington, D.C., and I'm back there with Tony Perkins, the guys at Family Research Council, I can tell you this. Those guys are going to keep preaching that same message and keep saying what they're saying until God takes them home. And they don't care what everybody thinks. And they don't have a lot of friends. And they got a lot of picketers. And people don't like the message. But it doesn't change the message. And if the messenger is real, it doesn't change the messenger either. That type of boldness comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why at the beginning of this chapter, Paul asked the question, did you not receive the Holy Spirit? Because they didn't have any power. They weren't calling into question what was going on at the Temple of Diana. They weren't having any effect on their society. They weren't speaking to any of the social ills. They were just like the rest. of You could have blended them in with any group, and they would have fit right in. Family of God, if you don't stand out, if you're not substantially different from the world, then we need to ask the question of ourselves, have you received the work of the Holy Spirit? Because if you have, you're going to have weird boldness. You're going to speak to things that people don't want to hear. You're going to talk to your friends and family, and you're going to go, dude, you're killing yourself. I, I, you're not going to get in their case so much as you are going to be so different. They're going to have to make a choice to keep going the direction they're going or believe that what they're seeing in you is actually the truth. And when you live it, they're going to believe it's the truth. If you don't live it, they won't believe it's the truth. That's why the witness of the church and the world is so important. Paul had that. He was the counter to great is Diana, the God of the Ephesians. Greater is the Lord Jesus Christ in me, who is my hope of glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we ask that our witness would be powerful in this world. Lord, may we be so bold as to go into the enemy's camp and, Father, stand on the steps and Minister your truth, Lord, not to be simply contrary or rude or obnoxious, but, Lord, so filled with the Holy Spirit that the words that we say, being seasoned with love, would fall upon the hearers and that their lives would be transformed by the hearing of the word. Lord, that they would recognize that there's a difference between the God who is the one God who dwells in the heavens, the one Lord who is Lord over all, the one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we have that boldness, Lord, to speak your name to the world. Would the resultant power be changed lives? Lord, we do pray for those who are caught up, Lord. They're 
spending their evenings sitting at a gaming table at some casino or inside of a bar wasting money they neither have nor nor can afford to lose. And Father, we would pray that you would just rescue those souls by your Spirit's work in your church. We pray that you'd minister to the homeless, Lord. We thank you for Robert and Kim and their ministry to the people who are so much less fortunate than we. And Lord, may we not forget that it's just one very small step from where we stand most days to where they are this day. And Father, we pray that you would just use us, Lord, that our lives would count for something. Lord, that as we live out our lives, that you would be well pleased with the work of the Spirit in us, your church. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.